Hi, everyone. I'm Kara Scott, and welcome to The Heart of Poker, sponsored by 8 at 8 Poker, a podcast that looks into the personal side of the poker personalities that we see on our screens. I use a modified list of the questions from the 36 questions to fall in love study developed about 25 years ago by psychologists as part of an experiment to see if they could make total strangers fall in love with this kind of shortcut for getting to know someone on a deeper level, but really fast. My guest this time is Tiffany Michelle, poker player, social media maven, TV host, reality star. She and I have known each other since we both had our deep runs in the 2008 World Series main event where she was the last woman standing coming 17th out of nearly 7,000 players. Since then, in just the past few years really, I've gotten to know Tiffany on a more personal level. We've been spending time kind of at different 8 at 8 poker live events around the world or at different other events. So thanks for coming on, Tiffany. I know you are super busy right now. We're recording this just as the World Series main event is getting started. So thank you for your time. My pleasure, Kara. As as you uh, as you said, deep and fast in that intro. <laughs> um, <laughs> just straight straight off to the races. Welcome to me and my brain. And yes, I'm actually fresh out of Vegas. So um, yes, my my brain is. My brain is full. My uh, poker It's probably life. still in Vegas. Like you oh, literally just walked in the door, didn't you? I just walked in the door. I, had, <laughs> I was about to break down crying just as you did that entire interview because it's just oh. like, my God, life and poker and relationships and the journey and here we go. Oh, Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> well, I kind of want to start by talking about 2008, if that's okay with you, because that was like... That was a wild World Series. I feel like it probably changed both of our careers and our lives. I mean, it certainly did mine. What was the impact on you? You were the last woman standing, 17th, tons of TV time, like the main event. That was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I think that being the last woman standing in 2008 and breaking the record for the largest field at the time that a female had yeah. ever been, you know, that single-handedly changed the trajectory of my life and career. Mm-hmm. It's, it went off in a direction that I, I'm sure I would have continued to dabble in all the things that I do now with film and television and production and reality TV and poker. But I mean, it's it's always such an easy answer when people are like, what's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to you? Or what's <laughs> you like this one thing is the one thing that for the rest of my life, I think, has changed the goals I have now because I did that and mm-hmm. also, just, you know, sent me off on this um, trajectory. So I don't even know what life would look like without that being part of my career, yeah. my my story, and then just psychologically and emotionally, how much the aftermath of that run then mm. played part in so much of the negativity and the hate and the yeah. ups and downs that I've had. Yeah, that is kind of, I mean, a little bit of what I wanted to touch on because going through that experience at the time, because um, I'm I'm older than you, but we were both you know, pretty young in 2008. And you especially, like, how old were you in 2008, if you don't mind my asking? It was 23, 23, 24. Yeah. Yeah. Early 20s. Like, that is just a baby in in a lot of ways. Like, you were pushed into this incredible experience. But I kind of felt like as we were two of the last women standing, I you know, that we were definitely pitted against each other. Um, and I thought even more so afterwards. And it was kind of a weird thing because we didn't know each other. And we mm-hmm. did like one little interview together from, I think, maybe Poker News or something. Um, but that was kind of it. We'd never spoken really otherwise. Yeah. I, I don't think, you know, it's so interesting. Like I never felt like actively at the time, I was so young and naive in my poker career mm. that literally, I, I didn't really even understand the stakes of what it meant to go that deep or have that run. Right. 
honestly, I was still so early in my poker career. I'd been playing, you know, $200 local casino tournament games and cash mm-hmm. games, successful based on my raw instinct with the game. But I yeah. didn't even really understand like ICM considerations, chip stack management. Like I was just like, what are yeah. the two cards in front of me and how do I win this pot? And so <laughs> when it came to you, I wasn't even – the only awareness that I had of you and the other women in the field were – oh, it means something to be the last woman in the field. So I want to be the last woman in the field. So you didn't yeah. really, no offense, Kara, you didn't no. mean anything to me. Like I had no emotional connection with you other than, oh, no. she's the last one standing in the way of having this achievement. Right. Um, so yeah. And I don't think I had, at that time really even started to build many female poker friendships that I have now mm-hmm. to where oh, I'm actually rooting for you too. Maybe we both get there together. You know, I <laughs> understand um, what female, female poker relationships look like to even know any right. kind of other that could have had in that moment in my connection with you. Yeah, it was kind of strange because in the moment of playing, I mean, obviously I was thinking about the same thing that you were. I was like playing my cards. I was thinking about you know, also kind of sponsorship and this and that, those, there were some things kind of happening in in that area at the same time, which was a little bit confusing and a little, um, distracting. Um, and that was difficult, but in terms of like who the other women were, I didn't really know. Um, like I knew when I watched the coverage back and that kind of made it a lot more clear, but you're kind of sitting at your own table, right? Like you're playing your own table and you're kind of in your own world. And that's certainly how it was. But then afterwards it did feel like, for a long time, there was a rivalry that had been built. <laughs> yeah, it was weird, right? Like, I don't know if it was for you, but it kind of was for me. And I, because we didn't really talk about it because we didn't know each other. Why would we have? Like, I didn't know if it was something that was TV or not or anything. Like, I don't know. I found it to be a very strange experience. I, I have to be honest. And I'm glad that we got to know each other afterwards. And because it was actually an experience to go through. I, well, I was just about to say, it actually bonds us together in a way that nobody else, like doing it yeah. at the time, having all those same exact sponsorship opportunities, running deep, having mm. the attention, nobody else understands what that exact moment is like, except you and except me, which is why I think later on, we were both yeah. like, oh, we we completely have this built-in relationship that we might not even realize exists. But no, right. I never felt weird with you. It was actually really um, foreign to me when people were like, oh my God, what a bitch. She like, you know, on the ESPN coverage as I click my heels, as I walked yeah. when you got eliminated, nothing in my brain thought that me clicking my heels had anything to do with you. That was my emotional right. response and celebration to, oh my God, I just did this thing. So it is interesting peripherally how yeah. people interpreted that and what that means. But also, I mean, that's probably why we love this game, right, Kara? Because the entertainment <laughs> TV production, seeing di- these big different personalities. What are the storylines? You know, I can understand yes. where those factors make it interesting for us to watch these characters on TV that, that you don't quite understand, like what's going mm. through you know, their individual minds. Yeah, I think it took for me to be, because I was already working in television in England at the time, but I, you know, I hadn't really done the American side of television. And I think it did take me spending a few years working in television and kind of understanding what it was like to be on the other side of it, to be in the production meetings, to understand like where the storylines came from and how important it was to make things interesting. So to take kind of a nugget of, of potential conflict and make it a story. And then I think that's kind of what made me understand a lot better what had happened in that moment. But weird, I know. 
So now it's interesting to hear your take care. Cause I've never really, that's interesting that you kind of came away from that being like, Oh my God, are we like, are we enemies in this? Whereas yeah. I kind of from that still thinking like, I don't know who this person is. Um, right. but that's funny. I, I kind of love that. I don't love, but I, I like hearing what your experience mm. from that side was. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, when I watched the footage and I saw like when I busted and you ran over and then you did like the little jump with the heel <laughs> click, I did, I, I, I'll be honest, like I, I did feel kind of bad about it. And I thought about it maybe, you know, whatever, 10 years later. And I was thinking, did I feel bad about it because I was supposed to? Like, because that's a big TV moment because, you know, people asked me about it in every single interview for years after that, really. Um, and yeah, I think I probably did because otherwise I kind of get, I mean, poker is about winning or going as far as you can at the very least. And so I wanted to go that far. Like, I mean, you came 17th. I came 104th. It, it's not really that close unless you're looking at it in terms of percentages of the field because that like 17th is like you can taste the final table. What was that like? The main event final table being that close and then kind of taken away. Um, again, I think to my benefit and detriment, I don't think I understood, you know, I hadn't been, you know, put me 10 people away from a main event final table now. And like, mm. oh holy gosh. shit, what a, like, yeah. <laughs> right. That means something to me now at the time. I don't think I understood how huge, how deep, how big, like I know the main event final table, but also I, I hadn't, like I wasn't a poker fan for 15 years and I couldn't list off the last 10 main event champions, right? right. Like yeah. I was a poker fan, a poker player, but I wasn't like, you know, that deep into all the trivia and understanding, you know, how, what a big opportunity that was. So mm. I knew it meant something and that's what I'm aiming to reach. But the pressure that making a final table now in my career would have compared to then, like there was just yeah. kind of pressure because no one expected me to do well and get there. And, and I think that not feeling any kind of pressure allowed me to take 17th. I just kind of kept mm -hmm. telling myself, just play like you're back at home at the bicycle casino in a $200 daily tournament, you know, <laughs> that's what allowed me to play with a certain amount of fearlessness and ignorance because I didn't have, you know, this past week I took 22nd in the ladies event out of 1,074 players. And you better believe nice. the that I get, and you know, as we final table three, three final table, like redraw. Oh, oh my God. Okay. I'm like two, like, of course I now know what yeah. that pressure is just in the ladies event. So, um, it's of course only many years later that I was like, wait a second. I was only a couple of people away from like a million <laughs> guaranteed payday. Wait a second. Like kind of statistically no female has ever made this final table. Wait a second. I could yeah. have just like put it on lock and sat on my stack and gotten there. And but you know, <laughs> I don't know how that, you know, had I done that, how that trajectory, yeah. you know, of course would have changed where I'm at now. And I'm in this, you know, very happy, lovely, balanced place in life. And mm. so who knows how that could have, you know, changed things. So. Yeah. You've always struck me, um, having gotten to know you a bit better over the last few years as someone who knows what they want and just take steps to get it. Like, you know, you just don't seem to have a problem with, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the self-doubt or whatever that can, that can really get in the way. But when you kind of see what you want, you know what you want and you go and get it. And that's how you talk about it for sure. So is that also how you feel about it? Um, yeah, you know what? It's, it's so interesting because I've only ever lived the existence of being me, right? So I only ever know right. what it's like to be me and be in my head. And it's only as I've gotten older and met a lot of really broken, damaged, abused people in the, in the sense of mm. many people did not have healthy families and existences and upbringings and the kind of love and security and yeah. safety 
allows you to be the most confident, self-loving individual. I just finished actually on the drive back from Vegas listening to my friend Zach Levi's book called Radical Love where he talks really in depth about he's you know this big he's a star of Shazam and he talks about being this big movie star and then literally goes step by step on like here's the darkness and the depression and the suicide mm. and from parents and how I was raised like how this has kind of created so much crippling self-doubt and I I don't recognize that I don't know what that looks like I am insanely grateful and increasingly huh. aware that having two very loving stable for me it was Christian it was like I grew up in a very religious household mm-hmm. having much safety, protection, and love, and just kind of a healthy upbringing allowed me to be a very confident person that, I mean, I'm sure I struggle with whatever my struggles are, but I don't recognize when I look at other people who have a really uphill battle when it comes Mm -hmm. to like their confidence, their psyche, their mental health. I just feel like I got so lucky in having parents that set me on a path to being a very confident, authentic, healthy woman. And I mean, that's like the most priceless thing I realize now. What a gift. Like what a massive gift, really. Yeah. So, okay. So one of the questions in these sets of questions that I have here is if there's anything you could change about the way that you were raised, what would it be? Because it sounds like you had a really beautiful upbringing. Yeah. um, Gosh, that's so hard. And I also think too, I've come to a place in life where I realize everything about even the positive and negative about how I was raised have created me to be this resilient yeah. versus person, right? So I, I'm not big, ironically being a poker player, I'm not a big proponent of, you know, regrets or spending much <laughs> effort. Could I go back in time and change X, Y, and Z? Um, I mean, I think if anything, I think because I was raised so Christian and so religious that there was a lot of, there was a lot of lack of being able to be honest and open and authentic about secular topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just even when it comes to talking to your kids about sex is like, we were raised with like, you, you date to marry, you don't have sex until you get, I, I know we just went straight to this, like, no sex no, before. Go for it. <laughs> like, I think the topic of relationships and sex and the, the limitations that you're raised with, or maybe the condemnation and shame mm. that comes with that you're raised in this very religious house, um, is something later on that I think that I saw a few things that created some pitfalls in my life that fortunately, like I was able to navigate, um, mm-hmm. and I would have loved to at different stages in my life with my parents, be able to be more open and honest about, you know, it's like you, your parent always says, I want to talk about everything. Tell me about everything. You can come to me and like, let's have a dialogue at the same time when you know you're doing something that's one of those big no-nos, you're never going to talk to that person about those things. And mm-hmm. so I think comes to those things. I also think that because I was raised with this, you date to marry, I, it's impacted a lot of my romantic relationships because I feel way too much pressure too quickly. Like I get claustrophobic in relationships where I'm like, Hmm. oh my God, I'm going to have to marry this person that I've only been dating for two weeks and I don't want to marry this person. I'm not going to date them anymore because I just think (laughs) Z and A doesn't have to lead to Z. So I've had a lot of term relationships that kind of, I, I've, I've worked through it, I think, but I have a lot of claustrophobia in a relationship because I think like instantly if I'm attracted to someone and involved, it means I'm spending forever with them. And Mm. that's not good balance. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I can recognize it though. I mean, my family weren't very, very religious, but I did grow up in a town that was, and I was, you know, when I was quite young. So I do recognize a lot of what you're saying. It's, um, yeah. So how did you kind of 
not so much move away from that, or did you? Did you move away from that, or did you just grow in your understanding of, of what it meant to you? Because clearly, you you know, you live a very different life than maybe you thought you would have when you were, say, ten years old. Well, I th- actually, interestingly, I've never thought about this before, but it's probably poker and being in the poker community huh. and very quickly going into such a secular community with a, a variety of characters and a variety. You don't of- say <laughs> <laughs> um, that probably not necessarily opened my mind, but like it was the first, I mean, I basically went from very, you know, religious upbringing to, you know, I dabbled in Hollywood and did some things and made some friend groups, but a lot of those people still had a similar faith or uh, Christianity that I was raised with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, a, fortunately, as we all get older, you start to look at the world and question things and question like, well, do I feel bad about this? Or do I think I'm supposed to feel bad about this? Cause I yeah. was Fortunately, my brain was able to kind of develop and ask questions and become friends with even someone like Maria Ho, who also similarly with like her Catholic upbringing, we could have some beautiful similarities at the same time, have conversations about, you know, as we are growing and aging and our, you know, brains are challenging mm-hmm. um, things that you can kind of find friendship and solitude in other people that kind of give you the permission to like ask those questions. And so no, I, I think that half of it was on my own, just getting older, realizing like, this is what I believe is real or is not. And I think the biggest thing, as I started to question and challenge, you know, some of the rules of religion or Christianity, I realized that I can take the beautiful faith and peace and beliefs that I was raised with. And I can, I don't have to completely reject that. Like I can keep Mm -hmm. a lot of that wonderful spirituality while questioning and challenging the dogma I mean, definitely, yes. Jumping into a secular world of poker quickly gave me the balance. Mm. I was able to find kind of the middle ground of here's where I want to stand with all of these different influences. Right. Huh. Yeah, I think a lot of it for me would be the same. I think also for me, it was moving out of the country. I left Canada and I moved to England and kind of shortly after that sort of you know, I don't know, just opening your eyes to whole other cultures and ways of right. living. And, and, you know, poker certainly does that as well. So, yeah. Different social groups. And yeah, poker very quickly. Like, I think, cause, like, if you worked in an office, a lot of the people that you worked in an office with would be fairly similar in who they are, where they live, what their goals are, what their family life looks like, right? But I think that poker is such a colorful melting pot. Like, mm. I could be playing with a billionaire from Timbuktu, or I could be playing with the NBA athlete, or I could be playing with a guy who it's his last paycheck, right? I think that, and based on the travel element that comes with being mm. a professional player traveling internationally, it's just very quickly you are around a lot of people that have a from different cultures and experiences and um, financial ranges. And I think yeah. usually most jobs, if you are in a job at an office or whatever that location is, you guys are all probably in a pretty similar economic situation, right? Mm-hmm. But you said about poker, I don't think. No, no, it definitely has range. That's for sure. Yes. Um, I like, I see what you did there, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even until you said it, but there you go. <laughs> see, I can't stop thinking poker even when, you know, I'm not thinking poker. Um, so what do you think you want out of life? What would make you think right at the end, you know, I lived this well, I lived this right. I kind of did what I wanted or got what I wanted. What is it? What do you want most out of life? Right for the jugular, Kara. Yeah. Um, this <laughs> I'm going to give you like an anti-answer. To be honest, I don't like to think too much about the end of life because uh, especially coming from, not that I'm trying to make this, I, I just suddenly hear myself being like, oh, Tiffany, this is like the Tiffany 
it was or is a Christian-like storyline. It's kind of weird how this conversation <laughs> has taken this line. But, um, it's weird. I've I recently my brother had a my twin brother had a near death experience, or actually was arguably like dead um, wow. a couple of years ago, and um, was able to be revived in multiple situations. But I think that definitely triggered this huge um, phase of my life where now mortality is this big issue for me, which I've really never Mm -hmm. had to grapple with before because I was raised with this very wonderful Christian upbringing where when we all die, we go to this wonderful heaven, we get to see everyone we've loved before concept. Mm -hmm. I'm in this really interesting stage of life where I'm like, oh my God, I'm 38 and I'm kind of grappling with mortality for the first time (laughs) in my life. Like I feel too old to be doing this. And I'm looking around thinking like, have you guys already all processed this? Because this is new for me and it's really freaky and And I don't like to spend too much brain space there. But um, all of that to say that the idea of the end of life and at the end and what will it look like and what will I want um, stresses me out a bit. Yeah. Um, And I guess I guess I'm the kind of person in my mind like I never want to go too far forward. I never want to go too far back. Like I can't control Mm. what's come and what has been. I'm only like here now. And so sometimes I feel like it's futile to spend a lot of time thinking about what will I want when, but yeah, I was just in this, um, casting session for a reality show and they're like, but what are your passions? Like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, honestly, I feel like because I had this huge success when I was young that a lot of people who continue to strive through life towards a goal or towards that success or towards that award or promotion or that nomination or whatever that is, I feel like I did that early to where mm-hmm. now like, I don't have this – I feel really happy about like I was the last one standing. I broke these records. I was named one of the top 10 most fascinating people. I did it. Like I can list off the cool things that happened at that age, which yeah. I think has taken away my desire to have some kind of other – achievement. And so what I really value now, honestly, is like, I like to be home. I like to have complete flexibility. I like to like make just the basic amount of money that I need to make so that I have complete free time to choose whatever projects most interest and excite me. Mm. Um, And I know that's such a boring answer, but I'm like, I just kind of want to be at home, travel, eat good food, drink good wine, spend time with my friends, and then have like a free schedule so I can just choose whatever the next fun thing is that I want to do. That's That's such a healthy answer. Like, I don't think it's boring. I think it's healthy. I think we get so, um, I don't know, we can get very wide-eyed and starry-eyed about some very unhealthy answers. That one to me just sounds amazing. So, I mean, I guess if you, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, if I'm, if I'm thinking about like, what do I want to leave behind in the world? I just, I, I don't think that I'm that important that whatever I leave behind or want to do is going to impact. So I think all I can do is it's actually just a lot of little micro decisions, right? Like, am I loving the people that are in my life? Am I being positive? Am Mm I being healthy with my own body? I, I can't, I don't think I can think that grand. Although just the immediate goal is I think it would be cool I've written a book that at some point will be published and um, working on potentially a screenplay about what well, I just said, like, I don't think that I'm that important to leave something behind now. I'm like, but I'm important enough. <laughs> but. <laughs> you know, I uh, creatively, because I'm my partner is a film and television writer and director. I'm very inspired by mm. what he creates and the stories that he kind of spitballs with me. And I was like, you know what? I think there's a, there's, especially in this very pro female era, when it comes to the entertainment industry and female writers and directors and stories, I feel like there might be a platform for the Tiffany Michelle story. So that's actually what I'm currently excited about. I think a a book 
And then anything that could come from a book would be, that's something I haven't done yet. And I think that's always been something that I thought would be a cool check mark on the resume. Seriously. So what is your timeline on that? Or are you just going to kind of let it happen when it happens? Or are you driven to, you know, provide it as at a certain time? Um, finishing up what I need to do, which is hard when, you know, like, like we just said, like I just got back from being in the World Series for almost mm-hmm. seven weeks and doing video production, social media, and now I'm going to Arizona to host something. So it's basically, you would have thought that I could have done this during COVID, but I actually <laughs> was busy playing online and doing a lot of social media production during COVID. Right. Um, so basically, it's like my next project, but it's sort of like I have to find the time to sit down and focus on it. And of course, as we know, there's just never extra. Never. Yeah. Okay, going from your kind of work questions to looking at the friendships in your life, what do you value the most in a friendship? Uh, I value most in a friendship, probably seems very simple, but probably honesty and authenticity. I Mm. think so long as someone is able to be like honest about their thoughts and feelings and authentic, then I think that you can skirt around a lot of the personality issues or drama. Um, yeah, I actually think of like someone like Maria Ho or Katie Lindsay, like Katie Lindsay has this like big personality mm-hmm. and, um, she can be this very passionate person. Um, and sometimes like not to sit here and chat about Katie Lindsay, but I know throughout her life, I've been her friend and she's had different issues with different friends in her life. And I've always just looked at her and thought, I so appreciate, like, there's nothing that Katie can say to me that I don't, because she's so honest and direct, I actually, Mm. she could say something that's like offensive, honestly, but because it just comes from such candor, um, I find that I'm not off put by it. I actually find myself respecting someone that is able to be so direct about like their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions, their desires. So even if everything else gets kind of cloudy or emotional, especially when it comes to female friendships, Mm -hmm. um, I find a lot of safety and solace in someone who can be very honest and direct, even though sometimes those things can be painful and off-putting. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah. Honesty, mm. authentic. I think that's, yeah, I think those are the two things that very quickly come to mind. Sim- similar with like Maria, I think Maria and I have been friends for as long as we have, because like neither one of us are trying to say the right thing in a conversation. Mm. We're always <laughs> honest thing. And I think the minute you meet someone else who is very honest and authentic, I think it just gives ourselves permission to be the same. And usually mm-hmm. that's a recipe for, um, the foundation of a good relationship. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's say you have a crystal ball and it can tell you the truth about anything. It could be your life, your future, your past, something that's already happened. Is there something that you would want to know? Any big old secrets out there that have been just kind of driving you crazy? I mean, it's probably like, did he bluff me on the turn? (laughs) The first thing I think of is all poker stuff. Poker's like the one thing, right? Of like, was it? Did it? Should I? <laughs> I mean, most immediately, maybe like, should I? In the ladies' event, when I finished twenty second, you know, a couple of days ago, and I got beat for most of my stack queens into Natalie Huff's Ace King, and then mm-hmm. I have five big blinds the next hand. I um, I basically look down at Ace and I ship five big blinds Ace four off early midish position, mm-hmm. and I walked away from that tournament thinking because. On day one of that tournament, I was down to five big blinds and was able to build a five big blind stack into a 22nd place finish. And yeah. so I was sitting there thinking, uh, did I just like tilt shove off a bit? Like ace four off there isn't a bad line with five bigs. At the same time, mm-hmm. 
I've been no. sitting here for a couple of days thinking, could I, should I have waited, you mm. know, two or three more hands? So my immediate answer, Kara, is I would use that crystal ball to find out whether or not Ace Four Off Mid was the right shove in the ladies' event. <laughs> oh man, you're such a poker player. <laughs> okay, so no, you know, questions about the universe. To be honest, those questions, I feel like if they should be answered, they would be answered. So better to go with a poker question that needs to be answered. Yeah. Apply it really practically, you know, like I'm sure yeah. I could find a different answer, but that's what's bugging me right now. So that's what I want to push the ball for. <laughs> Honesty. Okay. Um, so in your personal life, what roles do love and affection play in your life? Would you say that you're quite an affectionate person or that you uh, are not a very affectionate person? What, you know, how would you categorize yourself? I'm a very affectionate physical person. I think mm. my love language, yeah, my love language would definitely be uh, like words, communication, and physical touch. I am a touchy motherfucker. Um, <laughs> I, like, I even like to touch people. Like I was recently at the poker table, and like there was this guy next to me that, like, oh no, it was a girl next to me, and she like it looked like she made this huge fold, and it looked like her eyes were gonna well up, and she was about to cry. And I literally like Aww. I went to put my hand on her back and just rub her back, and I realized this person's a stranger. I probably shouldn't touch her without permission. <laughs> um, I'm a very, I think, being the youngest of, or tied for youngest of four kids. And like I said, this, you know, very loving family. I love touch. I love touching other people. I love holding just even like my girlfriend's mm. hands. Um, and I also find that I'm a very loving person. So yes, Tiffany is all love, all affection all the time. Nice. That's lovely. Um, Really sweet. I like that a lot. Um, so what would you say is one of your most treasured memories? Do you have kind of like a mental happy place you can go to if you ever need to? Uh, I mean, this is really turning out to be like Tiffany has the perfect life interview because I'm like, do we not establish <laughs> like how my brain is just full of like love and positivity most of the time? <laughs> really treasured memory, memory. I mean, it's so tough. I think the first thing I think is kind of going back to 2000, the 2008 run, but I guess that's a little more mm. career versus, although that, I mean, so much emotion and confidence and success and adventure came from, you know, that run. Um, yeah. I'll just say the first thing that came to mind for a treasured memory, which is interesting that through this conversation, I'm kind of realizing like how much of my life, how much of a thread poker plays throughout my life. Not that I didn't mm. know that, but I also have so many other gears that I don't always super identify with poker being this huge thing to me. But the first thing that I thought of was my grandfather teaching me how to play poker. I can remember, remember oh. sitting on the living room floor in his house in Northern California. He was a um, retired Navy man. And I can remember him sitting there teaching me how to play poker. I'd sit on the ground by the coffee table with my brothers. And um, he always smelled of trident gum and cigars. <laughs> And I remember that smell and I remember sitting just having such a fun time. I actually think that because I was the youngest of four and I had two brothers, like I, I always – I loved competition, my family, because we didn't like – we. my parents were very hippie Christian. So like we didn't watch TV. We lived on five acres. We were homeschooled. It was like go mm -hmm. out and adventure, play. Like we didn't have a lot of the distractions and electronics that a lot of people do. We also didn't go out and socialize a lot. So we literally every week we'd have a game night with just my, you know, family members of six. So we were big gamer people, big competitive people. And I think that very quickly I realized like I did not stand a chance to beat my older siblings in physical games. And oftentimes too, I was at a disadvantage even with like mental games because they were already, you know, a couple years right. ahead of me. Um, 
but poker was the one thing because bluffing is involved. So you don't always have to be the best. <laughs> that I discovered, I was like, wait a second, I can beat my brothers at this thing. And my brothers will be even more pissed and give me even more of this like physical vocal reaction when they lose, which is even, <laughs> more, even more of an adrenaline rush than when you play with like a, your sister or a girl that's like, I didn't even care. I didn't even want to win anyway. Um, uh-huh. so I found that um, I think the confidence um, just something within me. I think I have a certain amount of testosterone that when I started playing that game and when he taught me and when he took the time to teach me, even though I was a girl and that was taboo to teach me. And then he brought me into this thing that the boys were doing. I just felt insanely special. And, um, I think, uh, just gave me a real nice hit of confidence, importance, and, mm. um, feeling like this is something that I can do to like have a leg up or an edge up in life, at least against my right. brothers at the time. It sounds like you had, honestly, just a really lovely upbringing and family and, uh, you know, closeness with the people in your family too. So kind of putting that aside as something that you're probably super grateful for. Is there something else in your life, in your history, in your present that you are incredibly grateful for? Yeah, I'll tell you, Kara, that um, kind of along this topic of, you know, mortality Mm. and the people that I've known in life who've died. One of my brother and sister's best high school friends who dies in a car accident. And later in life, one of you know my good friends and then my brother coming close to it. And then literally my closest lifelong friend, her husband being paralyzed in a bike accident from the waist down for the rest of his life. I think that when I wake up, no matter anything else in life, and I think that it's impacted me. Um, yeah, specifically in this way that the people whose deaths or paralyzations I've walked through in life have made me aware that like on my worst day, if I have two legs to stand on and two yeah. arms to, you know, move up and down, mm. it, it kind of sounds like the canned answer, but it's just such like a deep personal answer for me that I'm like, anybody, yeah, on my worst day, like anything mm. could possibly happen. And if I can walk to and from a bathroom and pick up the glass of water next to me, um, I've learned to very, very much value having a physically capable body. And I think we just take that for granted so often. Yeah. And it's only until you you know get, get faced with losing that or meet people that no longer have that luxury that I, you become highly aware at how, what a luxury, man, what a luxury mm. I can talk and I can hear and I can see and I can move five fingers, dude the end of the day, yeah. that's like, I will ever be the most grateful. And that keeps me um in a positive place. I think on most days when I want to complain about whatever my worst problem is. Right. Yeah. I can see that it, it changes so much in a life, the ability to do things, but also how the world sees you and treats you. And, oh you know, like having, having people in, in my life who have and continue to go through things like that or who are dealing with disabilities or as someone who's chronically ill, Mm -hmm. like the way, yeah, the way that the world kind of looks at you and treats you on top of all of the struggles that you're dealing with can just be difficult. It can be really difficult. And isn't it sad that like everyone's journey is everyone's journey, whatever your worst day is, it's still an active thing for you to have to deal with, but it's just, it's, it's unfortunate that we can't live in that mindset and moment more of, you know, what is my what is my biggest blessing here? And what do yeah. I have that next to me doesn't have? And if we could live in that mindset, 
I mean, or if we could just actively strive to continue to remind ourselves those things while we, you know, work to give ourselves a tool and process through whatever our, you know, darkest, toughest stuff is. But man, right. what life changer and game changer that would be if we just woke up saying, I'm so grateful I feel, I mean, even, you know, after COVID and stuff, like I'm mm. grateful I feel healthy today, that I don't have a fever, that I don't have, <laughs> that I don't have allergies today, that I don't have a stomach ache. Like anytime I physically don't yeah. feel well, I just, you know, really want to more actively capitalize on living life to the fullest when I'm feeling good. Cause that's, that's the best life to be lived is when we're, we're feeling good. Absolutely. And I think being aware of that too can bring so much empathy for people who are dealing with things. You know, the world doesn't have to treat people who are in a wheelchair or who have other needs that really should be met. They don't have to treat them as differently as we do. And I think being kind of aware of that, I think people generally, I think it's a normal human thing to be scared of or to be nervous about or to be worried about some kinds of disabilities or illness and mm -hmm. that kind of mortality question again. And so maybe we don't treat people who are dealing with things and going through things as well as we should, as human as we should, with as much empathy as we should. And I think that would make the world a much better place, honestly, if we could do that. I actually had my, my friend who is this, now on the chair of this big, um, of the Triumph Foundation, which helps provide resources and assistance for people who have recently been paralyzed. So she mm. came across this organization when her husband was paralyzed and they're literally there in the hospital being like, hey, life's going to change. Here, we're here for you. We want to support you. Here's, you know, here's information about the how you're going to have to change your car, how you're going to have to change your living situation. You know, we're here to help you with that. They do a lot of adaptive sports programs now. But I was going to mm -hmm. say she recently pointed out, which was just such a mind opener for me, how for her and now her new partner, who was also paralyzed, her new husband, um, how difficult it is, you know, just getting in and out of places, finding the elevator. But specifically, she mentioned, she's like, it's really interesting with the LGBTQ movement, how we now have these trans bathrooms. But she's like, can we just discuss how there's like one stall? And this is not pitting the two groups against each other. But she's like, there's like one stall for a handicapped person in a bathroom. Can we discuss like how difficult it is for uh, disabled people to get in and out of these places? How most of the time it's just like, well, sorry, we just don't have that available for you. And so it was interesting how she, she was talking about how we're trying to have these movements for different minorities and groups, but how a lot of times disabled people are not seen as a minority. Um, and we're trying to progress in all these different ways for um, different people of different economic situations and different genders. But it's like, oh, that's really interesting. And I know this is her passion. It's not everyone's passion. But I was like, oh, wow, it just made me want to be so much more aware of, oh, wow, I've never thought about the quote, quote, minority of the disabled group and how they kind of feel left behind. And can we also socially be like advancing and progressing for, for our people, for our group of people? What can we be doing? Because our life is actively very hard to just get in and out of that restaurant. Nonetheless, let's talk about what bathroom stall I can go in. Anyway, her new partner who is also disabled, they kind of often talk about how there's a lot of these progressive movements for minorities or the LGBTQ community with trans bathrooms or different things. There's a lot of socially we're trying to make progress for minorities and put attention on that. But they often talk about how like getting in and out of somewhere is difficult or there's only one stall for a disabled person in a bathroom. And so it's just interesting. It's really opened my eyes to um, these. Yeah, I, I think the point she was trying to make is like disabled people technically are a minority, but they're not having kind of the same kind of attention and progressive movements and cultural attention mm. um, that some of these other groups are having. And if, I mean, of course, it's important to like do this for everyone, but I, it's, I definitely think it's kind of a lost community that 
it, we're not treating and looking at the same way that we're looking at and fighting for socially. And if anything, being a disabled person, like just literally you can't get into the restaurant. So let's not even talk right. about, let's not even talk about the discrimination happening. If you can't even get into the place to, you know, be discriminated against with d- different minorities are like, well, I'm here and I'm being discriminated against. And it's like, but you were able to get in there. So, and there's a lot of intersection as well. Like if you're taking, taking a look at sort of intersections of people who are dealing with different kinds of, you know, um, you know, stereotypes or discrimination, you know, people who are also maybe a visible minority and also disabled, like they're going to be dealing with an increased amount of that as well. So yeah, absolutely. These things kind of cross over in terms of intersections and need to be looked at, but like in a serious way. Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess the first thing is us just being aware of like, oh, this is a, a group that we need to or just even, I don't know, being, yeah, being even more mindful. But when she mentioned the bathroom thing of like, have you ever noticed there's one bathroom in an entire bathroom for a disabled person? Like what, what the fuck? <laughs> and I'm like, right. oh, yeah, really unfair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So for you, what would you say is your biggest fear? And have you ever been genuinely terrified? Hmm. My biggest fear, I've... Oh, well, yeah. My, I was genuinely terrified when I was driving with my best friend home from Vegas a day earlier than we planned two years ago. And we kind of were just tired. If we'd gone out for a fun weekend, we're tired of playing. We're like, oh, let's hit the road earlier today instead of staying one more day and dragging it on. And I'm in the car on the way home, which is a, thank God I was. And I get a text from my mother that says, mm-hmm. um, my brother's name is Timothy. It says, um, please pray Tim is on the ground, seizure, we might lose him. And oh I literally God. get, it's like the text message that you just, you don't even know how to mentally process that. You, you're staring at no. her phone thinking, and she sent a photo with it too, which is kind of oh weird because in her traumatic moment standing in the hallway is they yell at the neighbor to come over who's a nurse and, you know, call 911 and a paramedic is on top of him in the hallway at my parents' house. My mom snaps a photo to send to the siblings and say that because kind of in her traumatic weird moment, she doesn't really know what else to do except I need to tell the kids that this is happening. Right. So I get that text and I'm sitting in the car and I don't really know what those words mean Oof. aside from just like, wait, what? We might lose him. Like my twin brother might be gone in a moment. Um, and so fortunately my friend is driving and it was the longest and shortest drive home from Vegas I've ever experienced because he drove so fast. But at the same time, those three hours that you sit there, you know, being told he's being taken into an emergency room, they're going to try to revive Mm -hmm. him. You're just sitting here thinking, actually, I think I, I think in some ways my brain poker control was able to take over and just say, we're not thinking about anything right now. We're not going to, we're not going to walk through mentally Mm. what this would, should, maybe would. I'm just literally going to put a pause button on this right now. And I just kind of kept repeating on that drive home. Not today, Tim, not today. This is not the day you go. Um, and so I was able to get home, walk into the emergency room. They try to figure out what's going on. And long story short, um, he, he had a pulmonary embolism, just a blood clot. I mean, he's young, he's healthy. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. He's like the cleanest, most athletic person that I know at the Mm. time that he's 35 years old when this happens, just complete freak accident. Um, he ends up spending a month in the hospital on and off, was discharged, had to go back because he, he then, it's actually pretty fascinating to realize when somebody 
flatlines and goes through that kind of physical trauma, right? How long it then takes your body to restart. It's not like you just, okay, we've now saved you and your heart's being again and you're fine. It was, it was basically a month in the hospital mm. where liver and kidneys and lungs and um, they actually broke his chest going so hard Oof. with the CPR. Um, so it was a month in and out and up and down. And um, yes, the most terrifying moment was getting that text. Um, yeah. And thinking about losing, you know, any family member, you know, anyone you love that intimately mm-hmm. and deeply. And I, I don't think I quite understand. Um, I think there's something to be said about the twin connection. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure anytime the idea of losing a sibling or a parent is this deep, difficult, traumatic thing. But I feel like the way that I have processed and internalized it is just kind of different because it's a twin. And it kind of feels like... yeah. I feel very tied into what happened with him. And I feel, and I think that's also what has also kickstarted my whole, you know, questioning mortality and processing that is Mm. because it kind of feels like that was me or that like even more closely could be me or could have been me. Whereas I think a parent, it's like, well, they're older than me. So they're not me. So that's what happened to me. But I think there's something about the twin thing that really hits home. And I feel like a part of me was, you know, in that or there. And that's a Mm. really terrifying thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How is he now? Completely fine, completely healthy. The doctor that, you know, they put him on blood thinners, did different stuff, did oh. tests, ultimately discovered like maybe he has veins that were shaped in kind of a weird way that created this space for clots to happen. And so they went in, they basically kind of reshaped one vein and have huh. said nothing ever again should happen. Um, he's completely fine, completely healthy. They have no reason to think that, I mean, my family just has the most, we have a very healthy family. So it's really bizarre. Like, mm. The paramedics were like, oh, no, this is a drug overdose. We've seen this all the time. Oh. We'll Marco. And we're like, no, you don't understand. Like, my parents are like, we're not the parents that don't know our son's not doing drugs. <laughs> we promise. Um, so <laughs> That's not the situation. No, it was very, very bizarre, but he's completely fine. But, you know, that also, too, creates an even maybe healthy fear, but an even bigger healthy fear of, like, if this is the most healthy person that can, like, drop yeah. dead for no reason on a Tuesday, oh, God, like, how, how mm. am I going to? do I stand a chance? So that's really, it's scary to think about and process. And now anytime, you know, the phone rings, I always think like a phone call is going to come or someone's going to, you know, it's the call that somebody else has died or something else. bad. So it's been an interesting couple of years to try to not live under the shadow of death, but I definitely feel like I'm completely um, altered by it. And it's touched me and it's with me now, which is a little sad, but uh, hopefully I, I try to use it to, you know, be more proactively alive and present and grateful. Yeah, I can see that that would be one of the things that would come out of it for sure, or that you'd want to come out of it because there is, I mean, that's, it's quite a big trauma, especially kind of the long extended time nature, not just the driving and having to go through all of that and not being able to kind of rush there in an immediate sense. But then also while he was recovering, there's a lot of different kind of trauma kind of wrapped up in the length of time. The weirdest thing that I was unprepared for is after he's like discharged and he's fine and he's healthy and he's recovering and they're like, this is never going to happen again. It's really strange because you, you think that how you're supposed to feel is like, I should just feel grateful that my sibling is alive. I should just be happy that he's here and everything's okay. 
but you don't feel okay because you've gone through this trauma. You feel sad and bad and afraid. And like I said, like the mm. best way to describe it is like death has touched me. And so you then feel guilty that you don't feel as happy as you should feel. <laughs> You're being like, but I'm I'm scared now and I, I'm worried for you and I have all these other, you know, emotions at play. And so that was the most bizarre thing that I'm like, oh my God, I should just feel great feel grateful and mm. And the worst thing is like someone just being like, well, this is how you should feel. It's weird when you feel like you want to be in a different emotional state, but you're not. And then you feel guilty about that emotional state. It's a lot of emotions to process. Yeah. The human brain is so complicated. Like we just can't think the things we're supposed to think and we can't feel the things we're supposed to feel. And there's a whole lot of chemicals and hormones and all sorts of things that are kind of even just getting in the way. Like wrestling with mortality is kind of like the stuff of living at some point. So yeah. Yeah. Such an amazing mechanism. And I, just because you said that Kara, like I would highly suggest I literally on the drive, well, two drives to and from Vegas, just audiobook binge. Like I said, my friend Zach Levi's book, Radical mm. Love. And he talks so uh, approachably about mental health and trauma and processing and emotions. And I should feel this way, but I'm depressed and I don't want to get out of bed and I've lot, you know, but I should be happy because things are going good. Um, Mm. I've never heard someone talk so simply about stuff that like every single one of us would be like, oh yeah, I feel that. I think that, oh, I've never thought about how my brain does that. It's like, it's not a psych book. It's not a self-help book, but I listened to it. And through him just sharing like what he's learned through his life Mm. and journey and therapies and stuff, it made it it so destigmatized all of the weird shit that we feel when it comes to processing yeah. emotions. And I can't highly enough recommend. It was just, it was entertaining because um, he's a movie star. But at the same time, I was like, he talks so much about the mechanism of the brain and how we're wired with these patterns and our parents were wired and we hand these things down to, you know, the people mm. that we relate with and how can we become more aware and then change the patterns we hand down, you know, to the next person as we're more aware of just how our brains and hearts work. So highly recommend. Thank you very much for coming on and being able to be that open and that vulnerable and that honest. And yeah, I look forward to having a face-to-face conversation at some point soon. My pleasure. Thank you for the therapy, Kara. (laughs) (laughs) I will send you the bill Um, so that was it that was our last question and you know I'm very grateful for our guests coming on and opening up and I'm also very grateful to everyone out there who is listening thank you so much for subscribing and for listening and I hope you feel like you know the person behind the cards even better now so join me next time on the Heart of Poker sponsored by 888 Poker 